Hey everybody, this is the Wild Ass Podcast, and I am your host, Wild Ass Craig. This is episode 14, and in this episode, I get to introduce all of you to Sean Thomas. I first met Sean at the 2021 BMW Rally in Great Falls, Montana, when he walked up to the Wild Ass booth wearing a t-shirt that I liked enough to comment on. Almost as if I should have known who he was, he introduced himself as the brand ambassador for BMW Motorcycles. We quickly found ourselves in conversation, and of course, like probably any other new GSA owner, I asked him to help me figure out the electronics. Not long after that introduction, I met Sean at an ADV event in South Dakota, and again in Greer, South Carolina at the GS Trophy Qualifier just a few weeks later. It was at the qualifier that I learned that he is not only the brand ambassador, but quite literally the face of BMW's GS line. In this podcast, we're going to learn more about Sean and just how his story has developed into what is most likely any motorcycle enthusiast's dream job. In order to do that, Sean, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's cool to have you on. I didn't realize when we first met, because you were so kind and so nice and so helpful, just how big of a deal you are in the BMW world. So thank you for coming on board and spending some time with me. <laughs> it's no problem. It's a pleasure. I... uh Far more people in our world have no idea who I am than people that do. And uh, that that's fine by me. Yeah, right? <laughs> Keep me humble. There's no pressure that way either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keep those expectations low. Right. <laughs> um, so our introduction, our, the first time we met was at the BMW rally, like I said. And I was having some trouble with electronics. And you were more than willing to help me out. Do you remember that when we first met? I do. I remember it well at, uh, at Bozeman, yeah? Great Falls. We were in Great Falls, oh, Montana. Excuse me. Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> you know, it's, I got to tell you, like Montana has really appealed to me ever since. We, that was the first time I'd ever been there, and spending time at that rally got me looking at. Uh, like, have I ever left California? I wonder if I'd moved to Montana. So I was just looking at real estate in Bozeman. Not that I could ever afford it, but just going. So that's why it's in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Bozeman's beautiful too. Out of yeah. Minnesota, we used to drive to Bozeman and turn left to go to uh, West Yellowstone. So I've been oh, through there a yeah. bunch of times and absolutely love that territory. Yeah, that's really good stuff up there. Really, really fantastic. But uh, yeah, I remember uh, you had your booth set up at, uh, at the MOA rally. And, uh, and I was sort of sauntering about looking at all the different vendors and what they were offering. And uh, your, yours, you know, yours was new to me. I'd never heard of you before that day. That's okay. That's why we were there, right? Yeah. So people no, that didn't idea. know of us could know who we are. Yeah, and you had that shiny new F850. I did. I did. I was so proud of that thing. And I have to confess, I don't know if I've done this in person. My dream bike was actually a Triumph Tiger. Oh, well, that's a good dream bike to have. Yeah, well, and nothing wrong with it. But I really wanted an adventure bike. And when yeah. uh, BMW came out with one in my colors, I figured that was a sign from God that uh, that's that's the bike I should have. You know, I talked to Germany, um, and they confirmed that they did that color scheme just for you. Awesome. Awesome. See, I knew I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you uh, um, having issues with your electronics there, if I recall, as you mentioned, and, and that I are, that is a very common issue with uh, with any of the new bikes, including BMW. I spend a lot of time working with people on that stuff. Yeah, and it's not a problem with the electronics; it's a problem with the user, especially in my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took me a, a lot of years of riding before I really knew what most of that tech does. And it wasn't until I discovered it for myself that I also discovered that most people don't know. 
um, and, and you know, it's become a cornerstone of what I do just to help people figure that stuff out because it, they're with all bikes across the spectrum. There's just so much, um, there's so much to know and they're so easy to ride without knowing there's not a lot of, you know, we're not necessarily compelled to know unless we're, you know, get really interested. Yeah, for sure. And I, so I have to say that, that you were my very first interaction with anybody from BMW. Mm-hmm. We went to uh, Adventure Fest in Black Hills. It was in uh, Sturgis at yep. the Buffalo Chip, which was, it was only like a couple weeks later, it seems like. It was, it was real yep. close anyways. And I yep. got to meet the guys from the training facility. Aaron, oh, yeah, the BMW Performance Center. Yes, they, they were out there. That was my second interaction with people from BMW. And I'm not kidding you when I say this. We we loaded up, we left, and we were driving home. And I made the comment on how well I was treated as a BMW owner. I was just instantly mm. like a great friend, and everybody was super nice and real welcoming. And it was an experience that I don't really know how to put it into words. But I mm. we talked about it on the way back. And we kind of changed everything at Wild Ass since. And it was really in that conversation. I'm like, you know what? Everybody that comes up to our booth, we're going to give them the BMW experience because that's just mm. a standard that I've never seen before. So we, we strive to be like the people of BMW. It's, it's great. So I don't know why I felt the need you to know, say uh, that, but I mean, anybody that has a BMW probably knows what I'm talking about, but I'll have a hard time not getting another BMW. It's that uh, when I sold BMW motorcycles, I, I came to realize as a salesperson that my philosophy for selling bikes, it, it was best suited. I, I used to tease that I was, I pretended like I was running a bed and breakfast. And anybody that walked in the door, I just in my mind pretended this person has already bought what they want. They've already paid for it. And it's now my job to make sure they have a good experience. I'm, I'm not here to sell them anything else. I'm just here to shake hands and have fun and talk bikes and and um, that philosophy served me as a salesperson really well because i found that I, I was really just sort of interacting with friends more than i was trying to sell anybody anything and, and it it lended to my personal personality which is i, I don't want to turn flip a switch and and be you know hospitable you know because my paycheck relies on it i want to do it just because that's who i am and what I discovered, and, and certainly the people that you've mentioned, Aaron um, Rankin at the Performance Center, for example, it's like that's just their natural instinct. They're just super nice people that want to get to know other people that are interested in motorcycles. And they're, if something comes of it out of sales, great. But if not, it's no big deal. They still get to go and have a good time and talk bikes. And it's, that's a pretty special experience. It really is. And, and not just Aaron, but the entire staff, all of them, same thing. It was unbelievable. So anyway. Yeah. That being said, this podcast is not about Aaron and the staff at BMW because everybody's fantastic. This podcast is about you, and I don't know if you've listened to this show or not, but I consider myself to be the luckiest guy in the world. I have the coolest job. I literally drive all over the country and talk to my friends about motorcycles. So like you just said, we're all just a giant group of friends. And the idea of the show is basically to share all of my friends with the rest of the world that aren't out there meeting them because they're at work or they can't get away or, you know, sometimes motorcycle events just don't interest people. So that's what I want to do is let everybody get to know you through this conversation. Okay. I will do my best. I, I, it's much easier for me to talk about other people and product <laughs> than it is to talk about me, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's, it's hard. So 
I'm looking forward to this. You know, my, yeah. the first question is always, well, how did you get into motorcycling and you know, how did it all start with you? Um, you know, uh, it's, it's only friends that I've had since I was in high school that know that my whole world revolved around uh, music. Um, when I was young, I was a drummer in a band and uh, that was, that was absolutely my world. And, and, uh, and in that world, it's important that you take on some sort of rebellious hobby. I think, um, and, you know, probably for most musicians that's drug use, but that wasn't for me. <laughs> so um, I uh, was looking for something that I could do that would be uh, mine and interesting and fun and exciting and inspiring and, and motorcycles was it. And I had a buddy with a, a beat up motorcycle laying under a tarp and I had just caught sight of it and said, uh, I, I think I have to have that thing. And so I bought off him for $150 and, and had the, the, every band also has a really creepy van that they haul their stuff around in. <laughs> yep. And, uh, we call it the band, the band van, you know? And, uh, so we, we so I, I went in there and dragged this, uh, it was a Kawasaki KZ 1000. I dragged it into the back of the van and took it uh, to a friend's house and, and started taking it apart. And I, you know, I have zero mechanical ability, but I had a friend that had some and he guided me and we tore that bike apart and put it back together. And I, and that was my real introduction into motorcycles was, was tooling around on that thing. It was a total piece of junk, but, uh, but, but I was hooked. And it's just, you know, anybody that listens to your podcast, I'm sure can agree. You know, once you, once you got buy a bike, it's kind of hard not to have one. And if you don't, you will go back to it eventually. So yeah, well, so anyway, that, that's where I started. That bike could have gone the other way. That's a big bike for a first bike to have. That could have scared yeah, you, you know, right the, back out of motorcycling. <laughs> <laughs> this was um, back when there, you know, there's, there was a time when they wouldn't allow the speedometer on a bike to go more than like 85. Like that was, a, that was a, the top of the needle. Mm-hmm. And I had just, I knew nothing about bikes. So I assumed that meant the bike could only go 85 miles an hour. And I thought, well, you know, I can handle that. Right. <laughs> that, yeah. Suffice to say that needle was pegged more than once. <laughs> <laughs> so where'd you go from there? What was the next bike and. How did you get to yeah. riding BMWs and it's, where you are? It's an interesting evolution that something that's so wonderful about motorcycles is, you know, the ability to just get on and, and instantly forget about your life when you're on a bike. And I love that. And I got, I just took it in uh, hook, line and sinker. And, and um, somewhere along the lines, uh, motorcycling led me to who ultimately became my wife. And uh, she and I were dating and she got a job at a BMW motorcycle dealership just doing the book. And other than riding around on my bike, we didn't really know anything about bikes. And, and she uh, she got this job and came home with a whole bunch of brochures full of information on the bikes that BMW made. And this to me was, you know, I was one of those people that went, oh, I didn't know they made motorcycles. And so we sat there thumbing over all of the info on the bikes. And, 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 and at this point, I had my career in music had gotten me a job in the music industry and I was pro and I was certain I was going to retire from playing music and working in music. And, and somewhere along the lines, I got laid off and it just happened to be a, a month before I was going to get married. And, and my fiance at the time said, you know, why don't you come work at the motorcycle dealership? And I said, well, that's not really the kind of work I want to do, but I do have to have a job. Like I got to do something. And she goes, well, just come and sell bikes. By this time, she was basically the general manager there. And, uh, She's like, just, just come and sell bikes for me. And, and then once you, once we get married and things settle down, you can go take on another job in music or whatever you want to do. So, um, so I took on the job and I, and it, of course, 
being around motorcycles and talking about them, you know, it's, it's really fun. And there was an interesting juxtaposition that happened because, because I was suddenly absorbed in motorcycles, full tilt. I was finding that one of the consequences of that is that I wasn't getting the same kind of joy out of riding that I did when I started. And it was just because, you know, motorcycling wasn't the thing I did anymore to get away. It was what I did day to day and getting on it to go take a ride no longer cleared my mind of the world around me and got me focused and feeling good. And it was, it was sort of becoming, I'm not going to say a chore, but it was becoming kind of boring to me. Sure. Like, like I don't, I'm not as connected. I'm not as interested in, and one of the things I found that, that really kept me interested and connected was riding really fast. So I started going to track days and, and getting on bikes and pushing them really hard. And, and, so there was a voice in my head saying, yeah, you know, you're having a good time right now, but you're going to, uh, this is going to bite back, you know, some, somewhere along the lines, you're going to ride too hard and too fast and you're going to um, crash. And, and it was right around that time. I, I had a very good friend of mine that crashed his bike right in front of me and it messed him up pretty good. And, and I, I, I said, you know, I think that it's maybe time that I hang this up. Like it's not fun anymore. I'm not as interested as I used to be. And, and I think that maybe I just hit my, I crescendoed, you know, so, I was still selling bikes and having fun, but I generally just sort of parked them and stopped riding. And and it was really just sort of on a lark that um, one of the guys that was running a, a uh, starting up a training school came by the dealership and and it said, "Hey, I'm trying to get people to come to the school to learn to ride off road." And, and I'm wondering if you can send some of your customers to me. And I and I said, "Well, you know, that's a world that I know nothing about. I've never ridden off road. I don't know anything about it." But that does sound kind of interesting. And I decided that I would go and take this class that he was running, and it was going to be my uh, my sort of swan song for motorcycling. I'm just going to go have a good time riding off road, end that experience with a bang, and and then that was it. It was going to be it for me in motorcycle. So huh. I, I went and took the class, and uh, it was taught by Jimmy Lewis, who's you know pretty pretty big deal in motorcycles then and still is today, and and um, you know the car racer and all those things. And and in two days, it just it turned me around for motorcycling. Suddenly, I was having a lot of fun again. And, and I was doing it at really low speed, so I was safe, relatively. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and and I, I just sort of came back going, you know, maybe there is a world of motorcycling for me. So I became kind of an evangelist for off-road riding. And, uh, and, and anybody that came in to look at bikes, no matter what they were looking at, I would say, hey, you got to try out this GS. Like, it's really cool. <laughs> and I, I know you're here for a touring bike, you know, or a sport bike, but just go take this thing for a, for a couple miles. And if you hate it, you know, at, at the end of the day, like, you just had a great ride on a great bike that you didn't like. And, and that's not so bad, you know. And so I just started, like, piling GSs out the door. Everybody that came in for anything was riding and tying, trying a GS. And going, oh, that was really fun. And then I, like, well, if you're going to ride a GS, you got to go off-road. So you got to go to the school. And now we got to go on a, an adventure somewhere. So I would come up with rides to go do, you know, over the weekend or for a week or whatever and, and take people out in the back country and go play, you know, and I knew nothing about leading tours or, you know, helping people understand how to ride off road. I just, it was just something to do because it was interesting and fun for me. So did it stay anyway, fun? That was a very long was, answer to a short No, it's, it's, I, I learned a ton. Did it stay fun doing that with customers? That's also very interesting. You know, uh, one of my, mentors from California Superbike School, uh, Dylan Code, uh, he told me once that finding happiness in things is, is like putting a finger on a watermelon seed. Like if you if you push too hard, it's going to go spit out and you got to go find it again and put your finger on it. And uh, and that is absolutely true for me. Even 
with all the joy that came from adventure riding, I still found myself struggling to find the moment that was really still exciting and fun for me. And I found that I was getting farther and farther away from the average rider in that regard, because I just didn't meet people that didn't absolutely love everything about motorcycling all the time. And, and so I was kind of asking myself, like, maybe, uh, maybe that's, maybe it's not for me. Maybe I don't have the mindset for this, you know, and I, I really struggled even as I was growing in the motorcycle industry and people were taking notice um, of my sort of role, you know, as the de facto GS guy. And that, you know, that this is in this, we all remember the first time we rode a bike. Like you could tell me, I'm sure all about the first time you, and not just the first bike you rode, but the time of day and the temperature and the smells, like we remember that stuff forever. And you could probably tell me the first time you rode on the highway or at night or over a, a twisty mountain road or in the rain or internationally. But can you tell me the 50th time you did that or the hundredth time you did it? And, and that was where I was at. It's like, I'm now seeing the world off a motorcycle and it's really cool, but things are starting to get repetitive. Like, you know, I've stood on shores in exotic places and gone, that, this looks a lot like home or this looks like, like like this place I've been to or that place. And so finding the joy got harder and harder and it just kept making me try different things in order to sort of re-engage that Zen moment in motorcycling. You know, so the perils of doing it as a, as a business is that, you know, it, it loses its, it's fun. Sure. It seems to me like you're having a lot of fun now. Yeah. And I, I've come to embrace the fact that, you know, what we love about motorcycles evolve and you just have to be okay with it evolving. It's not a big deal. So it was fun for me for a while to ride fast on the track and it still is, you know, but now like, um, you know, several years ago, my kids were interested in riding. So, you know, putting them on the back of the bike, and going for rides with them and having a communication system so we could talk, it was so interesting because they're seeing things about motorcycling and experience things that I had forgotten that I used to love. And they're sharing that with me. And then they're having conversations with me about things that they don't talk with me about at home. So just being in a new environment with them made them, you know, share new things and have new ideas and new inspirations. And, and that made me love motorcycling again. Like now it's like, I want to ride there with them, you know, and that was just one of many evolutions that I've found along the way. It's cool to find new things. Like I, I get what you're saying a hundred percent. I don't know that you can explain it any better than you just did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have two, are you still married? I am still married. My wife's, uh, I think, wow, geez, like 24 years we've been together now. Wow, good for you. And, and your kids. Yeah. I heard on this recent podcast that you have a 16-year-old daughter that rides a motorcycle. I do. Um, Haley, um, at, at 15, we, you know, we, she started basically giving me the countdown. She's like, Dad, at 15 and a half, I can ride, and I want my motorcycle permit. Like, Dad, <laughs> I'm super into it. And uh, so for, uh, for Christmas, I, uh, I set upon getting her a bike. And it was – you know, there's excitement in, in that in so many ways, you know, because it's exciting to get her a bike. It also, like, I grew up um, with a, you know, a single working mom, and, and we couldn't afford anything. So the idea that I could go out and try to find a bike for my little girl was so exciting for me. because like, it really felt like I'd arrived in a way, you know. <laughs> and so I, I went out seeking out a bike for her, and, and I did, really didn't know what I was going to get her. I knew that my role at BMW would not, like, they're not going to give me a bike. You know, like I, it's not how it works. So BMW as an option was on the table. Sure. But it was, 
was off the table too. You know, like I was considering bikes from every manufacturer. And, uh, but ultimately I settled on, I found a, a the G310R was like, this is a perfect bike for her. Yeah. You know, it's the, the right size. It's got all the safety features that I like. And, and, uh, it's, you know, obviously it's a very reliable, very well built bike. I've ridden it personally and really liked it. And, and so I found one and, and grabbed it and, and put a big fat bow on it and surprised her with it for Christmas. And she set upon making sure that the second she was 15 and a half years old, which is the minimum legal age to ride it, um, that she'd be ready. So, um, she's 15 and a half now and, and she's taken a whole pile of classes. We just, just two days ago, we went on a, you know, 170 mile ride together for the day, you know, which is huge for a new rider. That That and, is, uh, especially on that bike. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, not a small deal. So she's, she's going at it hook, line and sinker. It's, it's, it's really exciting to see. Yeah. It's very cool. When you can ride with your kids, there is nothing, nothing that compares to that in my opinion. What about your other child? Boy, girl. My son Drew. Um, okay. he, uh, Drew is he's thirteen, and uh, he is really not terribly interested in motorcycles. A lot of that is, I think, he's thirteen and just doesn't care about that stuff right now. Um, sure. But I have also made it a point with my kids, like I don't want them to be forced into this. Like they, if they want it, then I'll support it, and and for as long as they want it. And if they decide they don't or they want to break, that's all good with me. And, and it's one of the perils of being in this role and playing the role that I play in the community is that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on my kids to like be a part of it and be really good. And, and I don't want that for them. You know, sure. I, I told Haley the day before her first training, I said, Haley, I'm really nervous about this training you're going to take and uh, for learning to ride on the street. She goes, well, I'm really nervous too. And I go, well, why are you nervous? She goes, well, you know, I'm just afraid I, you know, what if I'm not good? What if I crash? What if I get hurt? What if I, and I said, yeah, I understand that. I said, my, my fear is that you feel like because I am who I am, that you have to be more than you need to be. You don't have to be exceptional at this. You don't even need to like it. Just go and do it. And if you do well, then I'm going to celebrate with you. If you struggle and it's not right for you, it's no big deal. Like, I don't want you coming into this thinking that you've got to be, you know, Sean 2.0 or whatever. Right. To that same effect, my son Drew, he's not into it right now. Occasionally, he sort of raises his head and goes, we should go for a ride sometime, Dad. And I go, okay, and I'll, I'll take him out. And it's like, you know, five minutes into a two-hour ride, he's like, I'm so bored. <laughs> yeah. Drew, dude, man, come on. Like, we just left. Like, you can literally still see the house. And, you know, so it, it's not for him yet, and that's fine. Yep, that's okay. Yeah. Both both my kids grew up with mini bikes and dirt bikes, and my little girl, too. She didn't have any interest at all until she probably realized that that was okay. And then yeah. she decided she wanted to do it. So very good. Very, cool. Good way to do it. Um, your wife ride. She did uh, before we had kids. Um, she rode, but she has discovered after having a license and owning her own bike that she actually prefers just being a passenger. And uh, she's uh, so when she rides at all, which is rare, she rides with me um, just on the back and, and she's fine with that. She's into horses, so that's her world. And and I don't have, I don't have any understanding at all of horses. They're just not super, not my thing. <laughs> I'm happy she likes them, but that's her world, and that's fine. And and I get, you know, I go, I'm gonna go for a motorcycle ride. I'm gonna go ride horses. I'm like, all right, I'll see you on, you know, at dinner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that being said, typically people at work in this industry, we kind of lose the ability to ride like we should. I think I've I've sent you plenty of pictures of my lack of riding how many miles a year do you get to ride 
Oh man, I I honestly don't know. I I think that it's probably even less than you being in the industry and knowing how little we get to ride. It's probably less than even you think. (laughs) You know, I'm in the middle of a tour of the U.S. right now. We're on the road for seven months running riding clinics at dealerships and whatnot. And and I'm probably putting on a half mile a day at these events because I don't need to ride. You know, I, I teach other people how to do what I want them to do and I demonstrate it on the bike and then I watch them ride and it's fine. But uh, it's, it's pretty rare that I get to get hop on a bike and go play. I'd say I'm probably, you know, I'm two months into my seven month tour. I've probably put a thousand miles on my bike. That does surprise um, me. Yeah. I just don't, you know, and you know, we will be, you know, heading cross country between events and we'll stop somewhere and, and, um, look online and find out if there's any twisty roads nearby and, and we'll set up camp and pull the bikes out and go ride around a little bit and, and then put it all back away and continue on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Just making an opportunity and taking it. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. As often as I can. So you're a riding instructor. What kind of riding? And I think you know what I mean, but for the listener, there's dirt bike instructor, there's street instructor. I kind of picture you sure. as being a mix. Explain what you're doing. Well, um, you know, I went to work for an off-road school um, back when I was still selling bikes. I just on the weekends, I'd go and help out. And, and then I ultimately became a full-time off-road instructor. So I taught adventure riding. And my my interest was always new off-road riders, you know, people that had never taken a big bike off-road. And I can also teach advanced stuff, but I don't enjoy it as much because Taking somebody that's new to dirt, that's scared of dirt, that has little to no experience and shaping that person into a confident off-road rider, that in itself is really fun. But doing it so quickly, like I can stand in front of a group and say, you know, I promise you in four hours, you're going to be a better rider than you got here. And I know that's true. And that it's, it's really exciting to get to watch people grow into that. So I started off as an off-road adventure coach. As my role with BMW grew, also my understanding of their training opportunities, so that they really offer three levels of training within BMW. There's, you know, adventure riding instruction, there's street riding instruction, and then there's tour guide instruction. So you can you can uh, either go and, and take a class on how to be those things. In the case of on-road or off-road, you can go and take a class and just, just enhance your skills, or you can take a class to learn to be an instructor. And they invited me to come because they just wanted me to understand, like, this is this is what it takes to be BMW certified. And it's a big deal. You should come and see what it's about. And I decided to go and I decided to take their on-road training course. And not because I had any interest in being an on-road instructor, but because I had been an off-road instructor for so long and I was so set in my ways. And I get so frustrated by watching people that have decided they want to be an instructor and they go in and take on the role and they're not good at it. And it's just like a, a, you know, if you've ever been a waiter at a restaurant, you know, you scrutinize the waiter that's serving you in a way that you wouldn't, in a, in a unique way, because you know what it takes to be a good server. Yeah. And in that same vein, you know, me being an instructor and I'm not saying I'm great, but, but I'm good enough to know when I'm in the presence of an instructor that's not so good. And that's all, frankly kind of what I expected. Um, to experience when I went to BMW's instruction school. So I went into the on-road because I figured I don't know a lot about on-road instruction. So I'm not going to be contradicting the instructor the whole time. And what I, what I came away with was, holy 
man, these people are really good at what they do. I mean, they were so far above what I offered as an instructor. And that was a very humbling, exciting experience. And it, it suddenly ignited within me this passion to do on-road instruction, which I'd never had any interest in doing. And um, I, I couldn't sign up fast enough for their off-road instructors academy. So I, I went and took that and, and again, had this amazing experience with really, really good instructors. And so now I'm officially certified by BMW as an on-road and an off-road instructor internationally. So I can go and work at any of their schools and, and of course, run my own courses um, wow. with their curriculum. I, I don't do on-road stuff very often, occasionally, but but I definitely, I do off-road stuff all the time. Sure. So that's your, your main thing is the off-road. Is it adventure riding, typically? Yeah. You know, the, the big thing that I know you understand and uh, I, I had to come to grips with is that you know, these bikes are so agile, you know, adventure bikes. And I don't just mean BMW. You know, I mean Triumph. But I mean um, Suzuki and Honda and KTM. Like, you know, all the, the bikes out there that are adventure-style bikes, they're just such good street bikes. And they're so versatile that – you know, we see that they've got spoked wheels and maybe some dual sport of knobby tires. And we just sort of assume that this bike is so easy to ride on all of these types of terrain that I'll just be able to naturally transition to dirt and have that good of an experience. And it doesn't work that way. You know, we take these bikes off the road, and especially if we don't know how to do it. It's, it, it turns them into these big, cumbersome, scary feeling tanks. And I didn't understand why that was, except that when I first tried it and failed at it, I said, this is the stupidest thing anybody's ever done. Like, why does, why do people make these big heavy bikes go off road? And, uh, and, and I, you know, I learned through training that, that it's not just the bike that has to be right. You also have to, you have to change your riding technique. The technique can't be a street rider technique. If it is, you're going to have a terrible experience and, and an unsafe experience. So I became enamored with the idea of, of teaching those techniques to people so that they can go off road and go do it. So, Generally, like if somebody shows up on a dirt bike, um, you know, I can teach off-road technique, but it's not the same thing because they're so much lighter. It, it, it takes very uh, a very different skill set to manage those little bikes off-road than it does the big ones. And, and at that same token, people that are experienced dirt riders that come with a big bike to go off-road, there's an assumption that they're going to be able to easily transition from one to the other. And sometimes they can, but generally I find that they can't. They have to they have to learn how to ride a different kind of bike, and definitely at a different pace. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, but boy, way different. Way different. Yeah, you know, if you get crossed up and make a mistake on a on a dirt bike, the chances of you recovering are high, and if you don't, the chances of you getting seriously injured are pretty low. You know, where when you you know multiply that by three times the weight, and you start riding it really aggressively, then you know it's if you get crossed up, it can it can be. A, not such a great experience <laughs> yeah for sure um let's say somebody wants to come to these classes is there a required experience level to get to those or do you take just the i've never ridden a motorcycle person or what what are the requirements to come to one of the courses generally i want to work with people that have a a reasonable understanding of the controls of their bike i i don't i i have before but i don't tend to teach people like how to use a clutch I, I like the prerequisite to be that people show up having ridden enough motorcycle to where they can sort of instinctively get on the road and leave without, you know, fiddling with all of the things that absolutely new riders do. But it doesn't take a lot of miles to get to that point. So I can't put a number on it in terms of miles. You know, my daughter has got 300 
in 50 miles on her bike and she's got plenty of experience to go ride, learn to ride off road at this point. I've known other people that have thousands of miles on their bike and, and they may not be ready yet. Um, but generally, if, if you, if you feel like you've got a reasonable command of the bike, then, then I'm happy to bring you in. Sure. I, I only ask because I've been to a riding course, not off road, but you had to have, I mean, they're like, yeah, if you don't have 3,000 miles, we're not going to, you can't come to the course. Which, yeah, um, I, I understand. It was an advanced riders course. So that made mm-hmm. sense. Um, you know, it wasn't the basic MTF, get your motorcycle license course. It was an advanced rider course where they wanted to know that you actually knew how to ride and you knew the, all of the basics, basically. Yeah, it, it's such a tough thing as an instructor, especially if you're trying to run a profitable school, you know, where you're, you know, it, it's like coming up with a minimum mileage is like taking a meat cleaver to the situation it's like you're gonna you're gonna end up excluding people that would be just fine with less miles than that and you're gonna end up including people that that's not enough but yeah. what are they to do you know right. they can't and, and every especially for adventure riding you know people are it's so often that people think that they're better than they are and this is one of the reasons that i have a hard time teaching advanced classes because you know taking a, an advanced student you know, there's a presumption that they've already sort of nailed down the intro skill. And you can't just take a class and in intro riding and then go park your bike for six months and then expect to go ride an advanced class because you forget what you learned. And so I have always really struggled with people go, do you think I've got the skill to do the advanced class? And I go, well, you know, I, I'm really, it's, it's hard for me to say because I know you've taken several off-road courses, but if you haven't practiced, then we have to start at the beginning again. I can't start you at level 11. You know, we have to go through levels one through 10 first. Sure. So it's one of the reasons I really like starting with intros because no matter what their skill level is, everybody's starting at the beginning. Oh, that's a great way to, great way to go about it for sure. You're on a training tour, you said. You're going around the United States. Where? Yeah, tell so us about this my, tour. How do we find it? One of the roles that was afforded me as, as the sort of official brand ambassador for BMW is that dealerships can hire me to come and do events, BMW dealers can hire me. And, you know, BMW dealers, any dealer worth their salt wants to do more than just sell you a bike. You know, they want to have you come in and have a good experience. That might mean having people come in at night and speak about riding experiences. It might mean, you know, having them, you know, bratwurst on Saturdays, you know, people can just come and hang out and have a bike and, you know, doing track days and Wednesday night rides and those just things. It's like all the dealers I know that are, they're good at what they do. They, they make sure that they have events. And so you basically consider me, you can consider me an event guy. And so dealers can hire me and my status with BMW means that they can hire me and they know what they're going to pay. And they bring me in to run different types of events. So typically like on this tour, I'm seeing 15 dealers. And of those 15, 13 of them are having me run riding clinics just because people really enjoy them and it's inexpensive and it's a lot of fun and people can come in and, and learn how to manage their bike. And then I also do other things like, just like you experienced, people really struggle to understand the electronics on the bike. What, what I have found is that people, they don't know what they don't know. So oftentimes don't even know what to ask unless they're sort of prompted. And, and so one of the things I do is, is put on presentations with dealers. You know, I'll spend an hour talking about nothing but motorcycle electronics. And then I'll spend another hour talking about nothing but GPS and how to use them. And then another hour talking about, you know, how to pick up a bike if you've dropped it. And, and another hour talking about 
you know, how do you choose good riding gear and what's the difference between all the gear out there and the helmets and the gloves and the boots and all that. And so we'll spend a whole day at a dealership just, you know, sharing that knowledge and giving people an idea of what they're, what they and their machines can do. It's it's hard to understand or explain to somebody the difference in things. So yeah, to have an hour to talk just about gear, that's not really yeah. enough. It's it's not. And, and what's good about it is that it really prompts, you know, it gets people thinking, you know, I didn't know the difference between adventure gear and touring gear. When I was selling bikes, I didn't know. I don't know. You know, what is urban gear? What makes urban gear urban gear? Why is that even a thing? You know, I had no idea. And <laughs> This sort of lends to, you know, going once again back to electronics. Is, you know, a good example of this is in the past, when you took a bike off-road, it was just a well-known fact you had to turn off the ABS brakes. Like, if you ride a bike off-road, you turn off the ABS. Why? Well, the bike doesn't brake as good with ABS. Okay. So anybody that's been instructing for more than 10 years knows that when you take a bike off-road, you turn off the ABS. And they will tell their customers when they show up, Turn that stuff off. You don't need it. It's you're better off without it. And I, I hear this all the time. Well, the truth of it is, is that if you understand ABS off-road and you understand its evolution in terms of electronics, and, and they, that they have now created anti-lock brakes that are tuned for off-road, and you understand why, then you realize like, no, you don't need to turn that off. In fact, you're better off with it. And this is just a you know, a, the average instructor that goes out once a month, you know, aside from their day job and helps teach, they can't possibly know every model of bike and how the ABS works on all the bikes and, and be able to say, customers one, two, and seven, leave your ABS on and three, four, five, and eight, you guys turn it off. And number six, I have no idea what to tell you. So they just tell everybody, turn it off all the time. Sure. And so one of my, my goals as an instructor, not just, you know, teaching people how to ride off-road is, is understanding like what exactly is ABS doing when you apply the brakes? Why is it important on some bikes to turn it on? And why is it important on other bikes to turn it off? And how do you know the difference? You know, and, and those things to me are personally really fascinating. And I find that when you engage people in that at a presentation, it's like they're, everybody's sucked in, you know, even if they had, didn't come in having any idea that they were interested at all in ABS, they, they tend to be by the end of it. Sure. I want to switch gears a little bit. There's an event that mm-hmm. I never even knew. I don't even know that I heard of it until Adventure Fest in South Dakota last year called the GS Trophy. How would you explain that to somebody that has no idea what the GS Trophy is? Well, I think that the, you know, when when we saw Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor take their bikes uh, the long way down, you know, I, I, it was certainly for me, it was a shock to the system because nobody looked at bikes that big and thought you can really do, you know, big, long trips on that. And I, I think what we all sort of came away with after that was, um, certainly I did, was that, okay, you can take these bikes off road and go do these amazing adventures if, number one, you're a celebrity and have a bunch of money um, and or number two, you're some pro rider like Jimmy Lewis that, um, you know, has was born and raised riding uh, bikes and, and can manage this monster off-road. And I think as a consequence of that, in the 2000s, when adventure riding was really starting to be a big thing, there was a, there was a lot of people that kind of went, yeah, I, I, I bought this bike thinking that I was going to go on one of these big, crazy trips. But what I've sort of discovered is that it's really too big and it's too cumbersome. And, you know, wh- what they were really saying, and they didn't know it, was, I just, I don't know how to ride this thing off-road. I don't know the technique. 
but I don't think that even they knew that at the time. So I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I think that BMW took a look at that and said, you know, these bikes are actually really capable. And if you see them in the hands of ordinary people that know how to ha- manage them, you're, you're going to see that you, can, you too can do some pretty extraordinary things. And I think that's, I like to think that's where the GS trophy originated. Somewhere somebody said, let's go find some average riders, not not pro riders. We don't want people with racing licenses. We want the average GS rider that spends the time on it and knows how to ride it well. And we want to go do something that celebrates that type of person. And so in the late 2000s, they came out with the GS trophy and they basically said, we want, you know, tell us if, um, who you are write a resume basically saying who you are as a writer and, and what makes you a good writer and exceptional. And if we like your resume, then we'll, uh, uh, we'll um, bring you to a, uh, some location in the USA and, and we'll have you uh, show us how you can ride and we'll pick the top three riders and we'll send you off to a really cool experience. And, and so that's how it was done. And, and I myself filled out one of these applications and tried to go to be, you know, one of the people they chose. And I wasn't, but, uh, but they, they, Right, six people with the best resumes, put them all together at, at the BMW Performance Center, actually, and and said, show us how you can ride. And they picked the top three riders, and they sent them off to South Africa to go ride somewhere in Africa. They sent them off to go ride against other countries. I think there were set eight countries represented at the time. So, you know, Germany and the USA and France and et cetera. And uh, they put them on F800 GSs and, and barreled them off for a week doing a series of fun little competition elements taking lots of pictures and videos and sending it back to the rest of us. So we could all go, Oh, wow. Yeah. You really can take an average person to go ride a bike. And um, the GS trophy became a sort of a once every, once every two years, they'd have a qualifier where you you bring average people together, give them a chance to ride a bike and the best riders from each country, they would choose some of them. And then um, the following year, they'd send them off to some exotic location in the world to go ride. And now it's just kind of become an institution. You know, we all just know that we're either one year we're either going to be having some cool qualifier somewhere or we're going to be watching riders that won that qualifier go ride in some really cool place. Now, you being relatively new to the trophy, does that kind of encapsulate it for you or did you see it differently? (laughs) No, I think that's it. I mean, the criteria. So my experience with it was I didn't know what it was. I got the, you know, I'd, I'd gotten my BMW last June and um, not knowing what the GS was, I, I read the trophy. I read the emails they would send out and it's like, Oh, we take these, you know, GS trophy owners, you know, best in the country, best in the world, whatever. Well, when it got to that, I'm like, well, that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply. So the thing at adventure fest, they set up a course and they're like, Hey, this is, you know, kind of, didn't they call it something to do with the trophy or training facility type course, whatever. And I putzed around with it. And then Aaron invited me down to be a vendor at the trophy uh, qualifier. I'm like, yeah, I'll go mm-hmm. do that. And it was one of those deals. He's like, yeah, we like what you're doing. We can't promise you any business, but if you want to come down and all the stars aligned, I have a good friend that lives 30 minutes away. So I wouldn't have had to pay lodging. There's no vendor's fee. <laughs> so it kind of made sense. And it was pretty cool to be able to go. So I went still didn't know what the GS trophy was. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll come down and I'll stay in touch. And I thought, I should see what this is. And I Googled it. This is, I think I was leaving town on Tuesday morning kind of a thing to, to come down or whatever it was. I don't remember the days of the week it was, if it was a weekend. But I was, I was leaving town within a week of when I Googled this to find out what it was. 
and I yeah. found the GS Trophy 2022 is an Amazon show. And if any of my listeners haven't seen that, go watch it, um, and you'll see Sean, the guy I'm talking to right now, <laughs> is the host of the show. And uh, I'm watching this show going, oh, my God, that looks like fun. Oh, and, you know, as you watch the show, you're like, man, I would yeah. suck at that. Ooh, I'd, I might struggle there. Oh, I could do that. So this kind of sunk into the back of my head, and I'm like, I'm just going to sign up. So then I know where I suck, you know, so I know what to work on. And that was exactly my, my thought process. So I went, found my email, tried to sign up, but it never went anywhere. So I ended up calling down there, and I can't think of, is it Ricardo, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he answered the phone and I'm like, Hey, I'm clicking this link. I'm wondering if, you know, I'm coming down to van. I just want to know if I can ride. He's like, well, sign up's over. I'm like, Oh, okay. No big deal. And he's like, wait, why? So I told him, I, you know, I'm coming down to hang out and I can't imagine anything's going to be, nobody's going to be by the booth when this event's happening. So might as well ride in it. Yeah. And, uh, he's like, well, God, we couldn't, there's, you know, we wouldn't be able to get you a shirt. We wouldn't be able to get you. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to ride. Yeah. And he says, <laughs> uh, and he says, well, let me see what I can do. I'll call you back. And he called me back within the hour and said, okay, no, you're probably not going to get a shirt, probably not going to get a sign. I said, that's fine. Take my money. And that was history. But my observation of the event is all you have to do is own a GS and you're eligible to come and play with everybody. And it was phenomenal. It's been a very interesting evolution for me, you know, having been tried to be a participant myself and, and really discovering long ago that I am not a competitive rider. It's not my way. You know, if I go out and, and there's nobody standing there with a clipboard staring at me, I, I can ride pretty well. But as soon as, as soon as I'm under that kind of scrutiny, I can't. So getting to watch as a participant, or I should say getting to watch as a spectator participants go and how it's evolved over the years. You know, back in the day, for me, it was always these pretty hardcore riders that knew that it was happening and were really, you know, practicing a lot to get themselves um, into it. And, and as it's come along and evolved, we're starting to see more and more of just people that are just casually, you know, going, what's this about? Oh, that'd be kind of fun. I'll give that a go. And I don't expect to win or anything. I, and, I'll, and sometimes those people do win. And uh, that's, it's, that's exactly what it should be, is all of us just getting together and having a good time and then celebrating whoever wins and watching them when they go to the final event. Yeah, it was really cool. And watching that final event was justification that I had no business to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not this time. Maybe next time. Next, next time. year, we'll have some more qualifiers. Right. Next year, I've already told you I will have a course at home, and I'm coming. <laughs> nice. I'm really – I'm looking forward – I was looking forward to it the day I left. Awesome. So, Good the stuff, GS man. Trophy, uh, I have to assume that there's going to be recorded a show made again for the 2022 trophy? Yeah, there is. Um, so, you know, I went as a – at the time, they don't do it quite this way anymore, but at the time, each team that went from, from their respective country had a fourth member that was a team journalist. And their job was to be embedded with the team and shadow them and just take pictures and videos and write about the experience. And then I applied to be the team journalist in 2000 for the 2018 trip to Mongolia, and I got the job. Not not because I was terribly skilled, but I think I think somebody they lost how to the person who was supposed to do it had to back out at the last minute. And they're like, "Well, this guy's been tugging at our coattails and asking to go. Let's send him." <laughs> and um, so I went to Mongolia with Team USA, and just was there shadowing them and and making my own photos and videos. And the, uh, 
the people that were facilitating the event, they offered me the chance to do a Facebook Live, which um, was interesting because in Mongolia, there's no cell service, you know, so they had their own satellite dishes to transmit. And uh, they set up this Facebook Live and they said, hey, your team is going to is going to um, do an event right now against Team France. It's a slow race. And your team is really, really good. So we're, we're kind of, between you and me, we're kind of expecting them to win. And we figured it would be kind of cool to have your, the Team USA journalists sort of talk about, you know, and commentate on it as they go while we do this Facebook Live. And I go, that'd be awesome. So they start the Facebook Live. And I'm like, hey, everybody, I'm Sean Thomas. And we're at the GS Trophy. It's super exciting. And, and Team USA is about to do this slow race against Team France. And and here we go. And, and the teams go out. And right away, Team USA is, is doing extremely well which we expected them to and you know the goal was to go as slow as you can from a to b and all the members of team usa they're all trials riders you know they just all they do is ride slow so they're just crawling along at this snail's pace and and there's no way france has got a chance and then france does something that nobody sees coming they take all their three team members they ride all their bikes up next to each other and then each member of the team takes a foot off a peg and puts it on the peg of the rider next to them. And they balance their three bikes at a dead stop. And they just sit there, balance. And Team USA is crawling along and getting ready to pass them, which, of course, they don't want to do. But, but Team France has got this system they put in. And so I'm commentating on this. And I go, oh, my goodness, Team France has solidified this amazing strategy. And look at them go. Oh, my goodness. And, and so we're like. We'll watch it, and, and Team France, of course, wins in a landslide because they were able to sit there indefinitely with their sure. feet on the pig. <laughs> and, uh, and BMW, they, they finished the live podcast, and they said, they, they're like, that was really good. And I go, hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate the opportunity. And they said, well, you know, we figured you being the Team USA guy, you'd be sort of doing nothing but promoting Team USA. I go, no, man. You know, when I'm, I'm here for the trophy, I'm not here for anybody but that. Like, I, I'll promote whoever's doing well or whoever deserves it. And, uh, and thanks again for the opportunity. And so they've always had event hosts that come in and, you know, talk about like the video that you saw where they come in and talk about what's happening and do this sort of thing. And they're, they're, the host, they rotate through them. And so for 2020, they gave, they called me up and said, hey, we'd like you to host this event alongside Jocelyn Snow, who's you know, another, as you know, amazing adventure rider out of the USA. And uh, so I was like, heck yeah. So they, they let me come in and, and host That's the video that you saw on Amazon. And then for 2022, they're giving me the chance to go back again and do it. So I will be there in Albania in September offering all of the updates to everybody that likes to see on what's going on and how it's happening and what the excitement is. Well, congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. My next guest is actually going to be Ben. Oh, Ben Fox. Yes. Uh, that's great. Ben is a great guy. He is. When I was at the qualifier, he was, you know, they paired us up in three man teams. We were on the same, yeah. we we're on the same team. So we got to know each other for awesome. the course of the whole three days. And what a great guy. I'm so glad that he won it. It's so funny because, you know, if you, if you take away the, his riding skill, which is absolutely exceptional, and, you know, Ben was the best scoring rider of all of the qualifiers that we did. He's an amazing rider, but if you completely remove that and you just look at him outside of riding, he's just an amazing guy. He's, you know, he's a, a very humble, charismatic. You know, he's like he's like Captain America. I mean, the guy is great. <laughs> I'll definitely be listening to that podcast. That's good stuff. Yeah, so that'll be the next one. He actually says you owe him a beer. 
I don't know. The, <laughs> I don't know the story behind that. Maybe there's something you need to share. <laughs> he uh, uh, before the GS Trophy qualifiers, um, I encouraged people to reach out to me and, and ask any questions that they had about it because I was, you know, helping to facilitate the trophy here in the USA and, and uh, put my name out there. And, and he reached out to me a couple times and and had told me like I'm really interested in going. I've got a couple questions about X Y Z and. And I think one time he reached out to me and it was like really late at night or really early in the morning. And I, but I happened to be up and, and I'm like, Ben, if I'm going to be answering questions for you at this time of day, I'm going to expect a beer when I see you. And it's got to be a good one too. Like, don't, I'm not a Miller Lite guy. Like I need an IPA. It's got to be, you know, a good, <laughs> a good quality product. And he's like, say no more. And sure enough, the first time I saw him and shook hands with him, he had two really good IPAs that he handed over to me and they were gone quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, uh, so anyway, it's become our rolling joke between us that anytime we see each other, um, we bring each other beer and I have been really bad about this. Like I've given him beer, but it's nothing of insanely high quality. So I, I'm always telling him like, you know, Ben, this doesn't really count towards the beer I owe you because it's not great beer. So I promise one day it will be a really good one. So, so the next time you see him, you have to bring him a natty light. <laughs> Is this a good beer? <laughs> Natural light? No. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> well, the fact that I don't know about it means it's either really bad or really good. <laughs> it's flavored water. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> got to okay. But it's cheap. Yeah, well, it just... <laughs> well, hopefully you're there when I see him and hand him over the next beer, and maybe I'll tell him like, "Hey, this was <laughs> this is wild ass's idea." <laughs> I'm guessing I won't be. He thought of coming. Uh, it sounded like he was trying to get everybody to this next adventure fest we're going to, but yeah, that's not going to happen. So as, yeah, as of the I, time I of recording this, that's not happening. Now, when this thing yeah, airs, I, I, it's two weeks before we're going to see each other. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, he's. Uh, I do know about that, and it's a bummer they're not going to be able to make it, but I will see him regardless in Albania. And the truth is, is that, I mean, there are, the guys have had some time to train together as a team. They've done really well. They, they've got a really good shot at, at uh, bringing home the gold of this trophy. Cool. Has it ever happened for Team USA? Yeah, Team USA won the very first ever trophy. And they've done well since then, but they've never taken the gold. They came really close to Mongolia. But man, oh man, Team France and especially Team South Africa are so good. They're consistently really, really good. And they're, they're always the ones to watch, because uh, especially South Africa, they just, they kick, kick some serious, some serious wild ass, let me tell you. <laughs> I can't wait to be watching it. Like I said, I, I'm super pumped for Ben to win it. And, and that run that he put down at the end of that thing, there's no way anybody was touching that. It was perfect. Yeah, and he was the first one, really. Like, we had one rider go that was sort of an exhibition rider, and, uh, and then Ben just went out there and just freaking nailed it. And we all looked at each other and went, holy shit, is this the caliber of rider that's here? Like, <laughs> all of us amazing. up on the hill did the same thing. Yeah, like, oh, God. I mean, he told me later, he's like, I watched every qualifier that I've ever seen out there, and I practiced everything that I ever saw anybody do. I'm like, good for you, man. That's how you do it. Yeah, for like, sure. Um, yeah, he was ready. So we'll switch gears another time. We got – just one more thing I want to talk about before we get to my favorite part of the show, which is the five questions. But you had a podcast back in the day called Moto Talk. I did. Can you tell us about that and what happened to the show? Yeah. Um, you know, I uh, leading motorcycle tours, uh, 
uh, with another big cornerstone of, of what I've done as I've built my career. And I've led them all over the world. And I discovered really quickly to be a, a good motorcycle tour guide, you have to be a lot of things. You know, you, you have to be able to you have a good attitude and be encouraging. And of course, you got to know your stuff and know where you are and where you're riding. And you got to know how to fix bikes. And But you also have to be a mentor and a cheerleader and, and a, uh, a coach. And, uh, you know, you have to celebrate with people when they're when they're having a good time, you have to be there for them when they're struggling. And it, you wear a bloody lot of hats. And if you're good, and, and I was trying to be good. So what I found was, is that with all the hats that I played, I'm just, I was exhausted at the end of each day. You know, we'd, we'd ride from say, you know, you're up at six and you ride until, you know, four or five or six in the afternoon. And then you're making dinner and, you know, setting up camp and, and doing whatever. And, and And I found that my ability to, to be the the bright shining focus of everything all the time would be waning pretty heavily by then. Like I, I need a break. And so what what I would tend to do is sit around the campfire with people and draw them out and just give them a chance to talk and, and be the show. So I, I would sit around and just ask people that were on the tour. So what's your story, man? Like, what, you know, how, how did you come to find yourself here? And what I found was is that, man, people have some really exceptional stories to tell. And and, and I'm not talking about exceptional people in the way that they're, you know, out, you know, born to ride and they're out there, you know, being competitive racers, like, like we typically see on, on uh, podcasts and talk shows. I mean, these are just ordinary, ordinary people that have extraordinary lives that maybe had nothing to do with motorcycles. And, and it, it occurred to me listening to some of these stories. One guy in particular told me about living in Cuba and his family defecting and, and sneaking out of Cuba and, and, going to Mexico and getting caught and the Mexican nationals didn't know what to do with him. So they just threw him and his brother in prison and, and they escaped and hired a coyote and came across to the U S and got caught by Homeland security and who treated them really well. And, you know, and, and ultimately claimed asylum and, and came to live with their father who had, had defected earlier and set up a life for them. And, and then coming here and going to school and becoming an oncologist and moving to Alaska. And it's like, I'm just like, sitting in this campfire light watching this guy with my jaw on the ground going this is an amazing story no kidding. and i decided that night when i heard that story i said you know what i'm gonna i need to record these people need to hear this so i i went out and bought some recording equipment and picked a name i called it moto talk moto talk with sean thomas and i would just sit down with ordinary people telling extraordinary stories so that podcast went on for a while and i really enjoyed, i wasn't you know I, I wasn't sponsored or anything. I just, I did like you. It just, it was interesting to me, you know, and it's, and people were hungry to hear fun stories. So I did that for quite a while. And then I uh, was at a, a motorcycle event and I had been recording podcasts while I was there to publish. And I recorded one that I was really proud of with this woman that was a, a world traveler and had a really interesting story. And she was someone that I'd never heard really tell her story before. So I had this kind of unique position I was excited about. And the next day, as I was driving home from that event, I stopped at a hotel and somebody broke into my truck I was driving and they stole all of my stuff. And mm. I had all my podcasting gear and all of my, um, all of my motorcycle riding gear and all my photography gear, you know, my computer, like all that stuff was all locked away in there and they just broke in and took it all. And it's $15,000 gone like that of stuff. And uh, it left me in a real, really rough place. You know, I, I, of course, social media was a thing even then, and I shared online, like, this happened to me, but I'll get back and I'll, you know, I'll survive this and, you know, no big deal because I always trying to be positive. But the truth was, 
that, that was really, I was really out of whack. I mean, it, it's a, sure. you know, of course, a serious violation to have stuff stolen. And, and for me, it was, the hitch just kept coming. You know, I found out very quickly that I had no insurance that was going to cover it. The company I was transporting stuff for didn't have insurance to cover it. And they caught the guy that did it. But by the time they caught him, he had already sold off pretty much everything he had stolen from me. And he got off on a technicality. So this guy, um, because I had like rights as, as one of his alleged victims, they would send me updates on his status as a, you know, like, Hey, this guy just got arrested again for doing, and they let him off again. Oh, he really? got arrested again and they let him off again. Yeah. So it just kept tearing the bandaid off. So I just went into this spiral of depression and I was, I was really, really struggling with it. And uh, my friends were offering to try to help me, you know, with people that really knew me knew that I was going through a rough time and they were trying to like give me money to get back on my feet. And I got this thing, man, I, I can't stand taking stuff for nothing. Sure. Um, I don't, my, my fan, I, I grew up with, with a, a family, not all of them. I have some very good family members, but I have a few key family members that were sort of professional victims and they would, they would always, they were happy to take another person's hard work and efforts and use it to their own devices and, and not really show any appreciation for it. And I hated that about them. And I, I never, ever wanted to be that kind of person. So when my friends kind of came together and said, you know, we want to help you get back on your feet, I said, thank you, but no, I can't. I can't accept that sort of help. Mm-hmm. And they, they eventually sort of sat down and had this intervention with me. And they said, uh, uh, listen, d- don't be a dick. Like, we're trying to help you. And you're you're not letting us help you. And I go, well, you know, it's not that I don't appreciate you guys. It's just... I don't, I can't just take something for nothing and I have nothing to give. And they said, well, figure the, figure the hell out because, you know, you need to help and we want to help you. And, and so I had this, my sort of catchphrase that, that everybody started knowing me by over the years is I would say rock on a lot. So I had this sticker made up that said, dude, rock on. And I told my friends, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell you a sticker, for, you know, two bucks a sticker or whatever. And, and any, any money I get from it, I will put towards getting my stuff back. And so I had, a, I don't know, a couple hundred of these stickers made. And, and in, in a couple of days, they were all gone. And I had placed like, you know, a, tr- a triple order. And a week later, all of those were gone. And I traded a, another order. Like all my friends were just buying the holy hell out of these. And people I didn't even know. Because they were putting it out there in the world that, hey, this, this person that's a good guy, you know, in our estimation needs a little help. And, and buy one of these stickers and you'll help them out. So ultimately between selling those stickers and getting my uh, uh, getting a little bit of insurance settlement, I was able to buy all my stuff back and I recovered. And so what, one of the r- real positives that came out of that is now every year, and it's been actually today, it's, a, it's very close to the seven year anniversary of that happening. Um, every year I give out those stickers. I buy another batch of them and I give them out to anybody that wants them. And they're free. I don't sell them anymore. It's just a symbol of friendship. I go, look, if you ever see anybody with one of these stickers, you know that this is somebody that helped someone in need and they didn't really ask for anything in return. And, and that, that, that's a damn good person in my estimation. So that's really cool. Um, I got my luck. Lo- yeah, it's, it's cool. And, and I promised you the next time I see you, um, and which will be soon, I think I will make sure you get a sticker. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate um, it. it. Yeah. Um, but the thing about the podcast, though, is like there was a couple things in my life that were I found to be very intimate. and my music, um, you know, I, I traveled extensively with an ukulele and I would, I would keep it with me and, and it's easy to pack on the bike and I would sit and play it. That was stolen. 
along with my podcasting gear. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to buy another ukulele. I just said, you know, it was, it was very painful to lose that instrument. And it meant a lot to me that the ukulele had a story behind it that I loved. And, and I just, I couldn't, it just felt wrong for me to go and buy another one. I just said, I'm hanging it up. And it was the same thing with the podcast. I, I really enjoyed the podcast, but I was so upset that I had lost all of that gear. And I had lost that really cool recording I got of that woman because it was still in the gear when it was stolen. And I said, I just, I think this, it's time for me to walk away from this for a while. And too bad. so I just decided, yeah, I decided and that was okay. You know, I had a lot going on and my career was really starting to take off and I was making some major moves. And, and I thought, you know, I, the truth is, is that as much as I enjoyed it, it's probably best that I shelve it anyway for now. Cause I've got a lot of other things I need to do to just kind of shore up. And, and that was it for a while. <laughs> for I, a while. The, the podcast got, for a while. Yeah. The podcast got put away and, uh, you know, I kept all the podcasts up for a long time and they've still got a lot of listens. You know, I, I, I get a little report every month, you know, saying, Hey, you know, you know, 500 more people enjoyed that, your, your podcast this month. And I was like, that, that's really cool. But eventually I ultimately shut that down too, because it, all that stuff was really dated. And, and I, I went, you know, it's, if I'm ever going to do this, I wanted to be fresh and new and, and fast forward to last year, a very good friend of mine that worked at BMW, Germany was retiring and people that had met me at the GS trophy had said to me, Hey, this guy's retiring and we really like what you did at the trophy. And we're wondering if you want to take over some of the things that he used to do for us or that he currently does for us. And one of those things was his podcast, um, which is called uh, ride and talk BMW motor app ride and talk. Yeah. That's my next topic. So you lead right into it. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so BMW, you know, reached out and said, you know, we'd like you to do several things for us. Um, one of which is that anytime they introduce a new product, they usually have some sort of live presentation where um, they sit down with the people that design the product and the people that market the product and people that ride the product or wear it. And they have a host and they asked me if I wanted to be that host. So I, of course, jumped on that. I'm all over that. And, you know, hosting things like the GS Trophy is another part of it. And then they also said, we'd like you to take over this Ride and Talk podcast. And and, you know, we're putting out a podcast every few weeks and you can, um, you know, come up with people. All, the only real criteria for us is that they ride a BMW motorcycle, obviously. But beyond that, sky's the limit. Who do you want to talk to? And so it was it was really cool to be able to glide back into podcasting, you know, with, you know, with an amazing partner. You know, of course, you know, the reach of BMW is massive and, and their podcast is already very popular. So, so I get to now step back into those shoes and, and I, I just recorded my, my first solo episode that's coming out here in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about it. So I listen on Apple, Apple yep. podcast. So I listened to the one it's episode 71. If anyone wants to go find it. And I have to say you're a natural, your ability to dictate <laughs> and put words. I just talked to a good friend of mine yesterday about this. I lack that ability that you have. And that's something I'm really trying to work on is, you know, the ability to get out what you're feeling or what you're thinking, you have that. I think there's about halfway point through the podcast. They talk about you and then you flipped it. You became the interviewer. And I'm like, this thing, this is going to be a great podcast. I can't wait to hear. I, I subscribe to uh-huh. it right away. So I will be. Uh-huh. Honest. That's really cool, man. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I, I think that it's, it's really fun to be able to, I, I enjoy being a leader when it's necessary, but I really enjoy being a follower too. And I, I like being able to switch roles. And that's something that's so interesting about podcasts is that it's fun 
to set who I am and what I do aside and let somebody else be the show and just guide it along, you know, sure. just as you're doing, you know, it just, it's really, uh, it's fun and it's different and it's, it's, it's almost like being a, you know, a character in a play, you know, you get to play a lot of different roles and they're all really interesting. Mm-hmm, for sure. That is all of the questions and notes that I had. Was there something I missed that you can think of? <laughs> it's... I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> the it's... good thing is, is that I, I will tell you, I did a, I did a podcast recently and, and I, it was more about my daughter, Haley. She, she talked about being a writer for the first time and what that's like. And they asked me some questions and unfortunately I didn't answer the questions the way I would have liked. And I didn't really advertise that that was out there because I didn't want people to hear it. And I'm happy to say that on this one, I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say anything that I think is stupid. You know, uh, hopefully um, I'm not proven wrong. Well, if I don't believe you've listened to the show, but I, it's something I wanted to do. And I'm like, I guess just like going to the trophy. I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I know I'm going to suck at it. So let's just do it. Let's record (laughs) it. And we did. And the the first three, Or four were I had great guests, but the audio quality was terrible. And yeah, you know me in person. Like we got a hundred thousand things going on all the time, so we jump from subject to yeah. subject. And my podcasts were that way, and then it was just kind of scattered. And I feel like they've gotten yeah. quite a bit better. I know that they're going to get better. It's just it's been a lot of fun. So to to not yeah. talk about that one you think you screwed up about, tell everybody about it. What the hell? Then they'll be really impressed when they come to listen to Ride and Talk. <laughs> yeah I, I i'm i'm with you too you know it's still a big learning curve i just went out and bought a whole pile of new equipment and I'm, i've discovered after buying a bunch of new equipment that i i need more and different equipment <laughs> like oh geez i i'm gonna this is gonna be a very expensive enterprise it's gonna take a while to pay pay it all back but that's okay right <laughs> that well, being that leads us to my favorite part of the show And you can tell me if you haven't listened because it doesn't change what's going on. But I ask five questions that I'm hoping you've never heard. All right. Hopefully they make you think. But the coolest part for me is hearing everybody's different perspectives on the same questions. But I had to, I started adding some new questions. So I've picked out your five. And here's number one. You're a guy that gets to travel. You get to do a lot of things. You've seen a lot of stuff. So this question is what is... The one thing now that is on top of your bucket list. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I, I've, I've been ticking away at that bucket list for, for a long time. And uh, I think that you discover these moments traveling when a person or a, a viewpoint or some piece of history or some, you know, watching somebody in a market make something really unique with their own hands. It's, those are those are these really special, wonderful moments that I never forget. And I don't know that I have a destination anymore that I want to see. I think I wanted my bucket list on the top is always being sucked back into those moments, you know, where I see something I've never seen before, or I meet someone that's uniquely special and awesome and get to have a conversation with them, or I see something made that maybe I get to take home with me that it's, it's one of a kind, you know, th- those are the things for me, I think are, that's the top of the list, r- regardless of where they are. Okay. This one being a, you know, you essentially grew up with motorcycles, you have kids with motorcycles. So question number two, how would you describe motorcycling to somebody that has never ridden a motorcycle? Hmm. 
I think that we all have to find a way to remove ourselves from our day to day. We have to we have to escape. We have to be able to clear our minds and, and find yourself in a in a place or doing a thing or with a person that allows us to just make the trials of the day have a way. And motorcycling for for me and for a lot of people is what that is. When you're on the bike and you're in motion and you're looking at the views or enjoying the weather or enjoying some music while you ride or you're just just out there for speed and corners. You get to, for a lot of people, you get to find that moment. And that, that's what it's about. You get on the bike and you forget. And, uh, and, and in forgetting, you get to live. And, and, and some people find that in golf and, and good for them. <laughs> but I, I can't, I can't do it there. You know, like I, I gotta, my Zen moment ha- comes from, from speed and things like motorcycling and skydiving and those sorts of things. And, and, and if you're that type of person, um, then you're going to love it because that's what it's going to give you. My third question, being an instructor, this one should be interesting. What is the worst advice that you see or hear being dumped onto the motorcycling community? Whether it's from an older (laughs) rider or somebody that thinks they're a good rider, what's the worst advice you see being handed out? Uh, So that's a really interesting one. I think that the worst advice is poorly delivered good advice. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I used to work for a company that made a, a, a widget and, and this widget was very recognizable and everybody wanted it. And people would walk up to me where I worked representing that company and they could hold their hands up and make the shape of that widget. And they didn't even have to ask the question. And I would know exactly what they were about to ask me. And it happened to be that where I worked, I didn't sell that particular widget. So they would come up to me and people would say, I'm looking for, and I'd see that shape in their hands. And I'd say, you're looking for this widget. We don't sell it here. You have to go to so-and-so and you can get it there. And I learned somehow, somewhere, that it's a terrible idea to tell people something without hearing them out first. You know, I was it wasn't that I was wrong. I mean, I knew what the widget was that they wanted, but I never let them ask the question. And that's really frustrating. And I find that um, in motorcycles, uh, somebody I know jokingly said, you could dial a wrong number and the person on the other line will tell you how to ride your motorcycle better than you do. It, it basically making the point that you, you didn't ask for the advice. You know, I don't, I don't want to know, like at least respect me enough to ask me what it is that I want to know or try to learn a little bit about me before giving me advice. And I think that's probably the most irritating thing I see in motorcycles is, is people giving advice they weren't asked for. And even if it's good advice, it's, it's not received well if it's just thrown on you without any, you know, how many times have I been sitting at a cafe and somebody walks up to me and, and has seen my bike out front and goes, you know, that's a cool bike. Oh, obviously you can't take that off road. Those things are terrible in the dirt. And there's the, I'm like, like not only did I not ask for your advice on riding my bike, but I'm sitting here, my, I'm, my, I'm in riding boots that are literally covered in dirt from Mongolia. Like I was just there riding that bike and you're telling me I can't do it. It's like, if you just asked me the question, like, what, do you, what can you really do in that thing? You know, like, I've always kind of wondered, like, we, we'd have a real conversation. But <laughs> that was a long answer to a short question. But I say the worst advice is advice you didn't ask for. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally agree with that. So we know horses aren't your thing, and we know golf is not your thing. 
So what is your favorite <laughs> non-motorcycle hobby? It's probably uh, carpentry. When I was in high school, I was uh, it was very clear very early on in high school that I was not going to be an educated man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, was a, I was a terrible student. I had fully discovered girls, and I had no interest in being at school at all. And, and I took on a job with a guy helping him in, in construction, doing, you know, cleaning up debris and, and occasionally hammering on things. And, and I became quite convinced that there was no point in me being in school anymore. I had a good paying job. I was making like $15 an hour, which was a lot of money for me at the time. And I thought, I don't need to go to school. So I, I dropped out and, uh, and I was going to be a carpenter for the rest of my life. And, and I was, by the way, with zero interest of traveling anywhere, I did not have, I had never left my hometown. I did not want to. Okay. And, uh, Obviously, that changed, and and I obviously am no longer a carpenter. But I did I did spend seven years as a carpenter. I got my my contractor's license and I did the whole bit. And uh, to this day, my one of my favorite pastimes is just coming into my garage where I still have all my woodworking tools and just building something. I'm not good at it. I'm not. I'm, I'm okay, but I do really enjoy it. Wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> I think I've, I've won a lot. I have over the years. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this next question is the original. What is something you believe that other people think is insane? Oh, mm. that's interesting. I think uh, something I've discovered about, especially if you if you're if you have a really strong opinion about something, and another person that you're speaking to has a, has a very strong opinion that you're that maybe opposes your point of view. I've, I've come to learn and I, and I now strongly believe that the only way you can get somebody to, to hear you out if you have a differing opinion and really listen to you is you have to make them think you're really listening to them first. And the only way you can make a person really think you're listening to them is to actually listen to them mm-hmm. because people can tell when you're just waiting for them to stop talking so you can talk. And the perils that come from that are that if you really listen and you give a person an honest shot at explaining themselves, you might end up having a different opinion at the end of the conversation. Even your most firmly held beliefs could be shaken by that conversation. And that is really scary Mm -hmm. because, you know, who we are and what we believe is who we are and what we believe. And if, if we believe something different all of a sudden, are we still who we were? And is that a good thing? I don't know. Um, But once I learned to embrace that, I've learned to just shut my mouth and ask questions and get to understand people. And so I think, you know, I, I've come to believe that I want to, I want to be the person that has, has more questions than answers. And I want to surround myself with people that have more questions than answers. And I found that in my close circle of friends has gotten a lot smaller as a consequence of that, because that's (laughs) a bloody hard pill to swallow. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. But, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm a different person today than I was yesterday as a consequence of imploring that. And, and I, I I'm, I'm hoping that answered your question as well as I hope I wanted it to, but uh, that's where I'm at. <laughs> nope. That's good. I like it. That was five. So do you have, uh, as we wrap this up, do you have any asks or requests, anything my audience can do for you? I think that, um, I think I'm going to ask your audience of something that they probably already know and do. Um, but it's advice that I learned far too late in life and, uh, and I'm trying to employ it, which is 
I used to walk into a room wondering how I was perceived and um, whether or not I was going to be accepted. And I've come to realize that every, almost everybody in that room is wanting that too. And if we go into a room knowing that and we give people the, you know, uh, the opportunity to feel accepted and feel connected, then you, you can create some friendships that'll, that'll be there for you and, and, in every walk of life and that's that's pretty exciting stuff so i think that if we just boil that down to the simple things like if you see somebody on a motorcycle i would ask that you do what you probably already do which is make them feel welcome and make them feel like they're part of something really cool because damn it they are and so are you and and that's how we make this community the strongest it can be is just supporting each other that's good stuff for sure thank you for that listeners rewind that back a minute and just listen to that again that's perfect where can we follow you? Instagram, Facebook, website. What do you got? <laughs> All right. So um, if you type in Sean Thomas Rock On, just like the sticker, the Rock On sticker, S-H-A-W-N, Sean Thomas Rock On, it will take you to um, Facebook and Instagram, um, which which for me are very motorcycle centric. And, uh, and, and you'll, um, you can follow along and, and have a good time and ask me advice anytime. If you are a TikTok viewer and you follow Sean Thomas Rock on, you will not find much motorcycles. You will find <laughs> me showing you texts for my teenage daughter, which I got to tell you, man, I've been on social media for about as long as it's been around. And I've spent a long time building up a following um, of enthusiasts in motorcycles. And in one week, text from my teenage daughter blew the doors off of every other social media front I have combined. I think I've got that's funny, um, like 5 million views and, and 40,000 followers just for text from my teenage daughter. So go and enjoy those. They're pretty funny. <laughs> I will subscribe to that. As soon as we get off of here, I or follow you on that. That's funny. Yeah, do it. Sean Thomas rock on man. It's a pretty funny place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think your last parting words were what you said, asking for the audience, um, unless there's something else. No, that's good. I, I have a question for you offline. Other than that, I'm, I'm happy. Perfect. Then we can wrap this thing up. Folks, if you like what you are hearing, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can follow the adventures on Facebook or Instagram by looking for Real Wild Ass. And, of course, I am Wild Ass Craig. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again in a couple weeks. And, of course, Thank you again, Sean, for coming on. Rock on, my friends. Thanks for listening.